America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when we can focus on what's going to be very different about the State of the Union address when it uh, takes place tomorrow night. And I know the excitement, the electricity, the uh, un unbelievable enthusiasm regarding President Biden's State of the Union address is just mounting everywhere. You can feel it in the air. Well, one thing that's going to be very different is Nancy Pelosi won't be there. Nobody's going to be uh, ripping up a speech afterward or rolling her eyes. I don't know. Maybe Kevin McCarthy would do that uh, since he's replacing Nancy Pelosi. He's a new Speaker of the House. The Republicans have uh, taken over the House. They have put together these new committees, including the new Weaponization Committee, on the alleged weaponization of government. With all of that going on, it's a great time to take a look at what is the fate of conservatism. And nobody better to address that than uh, the author of the best-selling book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. And... Uh, and that, uh, that book is by Matthew Continetti, who is a senior fellow and the inaugural Patrick and Charlene Neal Chair in American Prosperity at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work is focused on American political thought and history. Uh, Matt, always great to speak to you, and uh, congratulations on the success and influence of your book. So, okay... You've been writing about the last hundred years of American conservatism. Uh, what's going to be different about American conservatism in 2023 and 24? Well, Michael, uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I think the major difference uh, between the conservatism of, of the past century that I write about and the conservatism of today is um, the term is contested unlike ever before. There's always been a lot of disputation on the American right. There's always been factionalism, different camps. But uh, today, when you go online, uh, when you read conservative periodicals, you uh, listen to talk radio, watch television, uh, you find that people are really arguing over what it means to be conservative, whether conservatives should um, continue to oppose the expansion of government or should embrace it, what type of leader the conservative movement should have in the next year. These debates are, are very pronounced um, in a way that uh, I haven't really seen before, but could turn out to be healthy and productive. When you say they could turn out to be healthy and productive, that brings us immediately to the struggle within conservatism right now, and it's going to be a struggle for the nation at large concerning the debt ceiling. Uh, right. you've, you've written about that. I mean, uh, a lot of people looking at the uh, insistence on the part of Kevin McCarthy and, and the other many of the other leaders in the House, not all of them who are Republicans, the insistence that any lifting of the debt ceiling be accompanied by major spending cuts. Uh, do you believe that they will 
get any kind of deal on the debt ceiling that they could describe as a victory for conservative principles? Well, we really don't know. I think we're at the beginning of this process. It's going to be a long and drawn out process. Um, you know, we just had the first meeting last week between Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. Um, McCarthy says he's it was a productive meeting. Um, the White House continues to say they won't um, negotiate on whether the debt ceiling ought to be lifted. But that does leave them some room, perhaps, to agree to uh, spending cuts if that's what it takes to get the measure through the House. Um, I, I, so I think we're going to basically kind of uh, careen towards some sort of impasse that will come later this spring when the markets begin to show signs of worry about whether the def uh, debt ceiling will be raised at all. And when that happens, Michael, I do think um, that we will get some type of uh, agreement and a debt ceiling increase, but um, it's not going to come right away, and it's not going to be pretty. Well, it, when you say it won't be pretty, uh, one can imagine that for people in the Freedom Caucus and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Paul Gosar and Matt Gates, that people in that wing of the party under no circumstances are going to vote to raise the debt ceiling, but they don't need to, right? I mean, you just need a, uh, a even a modest chunk of Republicans to join with the Democrats to get that done and to avoid default. So That's right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I think what, one thing that's striking um, is when you look at some of the um, configurations of power, say, heading into this debate. The first is, you know, many of the um, frontline representatives in the Republican conference, that is to say the Republican House members who come from Biden districts or from um, competitive districts that uh, both Trump and Biden have won in the previous cycles, they are sticking to the line that there needs to be some spending reductions um, before there's a debt ceiling increase. And I think they're doing that because they can read the polls, which shows that which show that Americans are concerned about spending. So I do think Republicans have an argument here that they can take to the public. The danger, as you point out, is uh, the the kind of the stalwarts, the radicals who won't do anything under any circumstances, um, can capsize any deal. And so uh, I think it's more likely that you get a many Republicans and some moderate Democrats, or that is to say Democrats who are uh, also coming from frontline competitive districts who are open to some sort of spending reductions, then you do say have a debt ceiling increase with all the Democrats and some Republicans. Do you see what I mean? So I, I do, uh, but the, 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 the question of course will be what are the actual numbers and, the, and those figures I don't believe we're gonna see until the very last minute. Okay, when you talk about the uh, Republican Party being divided as never before, something as basic as avoiding default of the U.S. government, that's a divisive issue. There's also divisiveness in the Democratic part, uh, Republican Party, pardon me, about uh, America's policy toward Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And uh, that who would have thought that a party that at one time embraced Ronald Reagan and his opposition to the evil empire – uh, with something approaching unanimity, uh, today this is uh, splitting people on the right, is it not? 
it's not only splitting uh, people on the right, Michael, but I'm, I fear as someone who supports continued aid to Ukraine, there is an emerging consensus against further assistance within the Republican Party. The trend lines on some of these polls, when you ask conservatives and self-identified Republicans whether America should continue to aid Ukraine, are very worrisome. Um, Republicans are now slipping into kind of majorities against further assistance to Ukraine. And what's happening here? Well, I, I think, one, uh, it's a lot of partisanship is at work. Um, we've seen this before in earlier cases where you have a Democrat uh, president uh, opposed uh, by the Republicans, and Republicans just tend to reflexively take the opposite stand as um, the Democratic president. Um, another thing is there uh, is a growing uh, sentiment uh, in the Republican Party that um, believes uh, American power is um, can can have dangerous secondary effects uh, that we're escalating perhaps too quickly. Um, that um, uh, there's still memories of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, even as we approach the 20th anniversary of the, the invasion of Iraq. And for all these reasons, the foreign policy debate in the Republican Party uh, is reaching an intense uh, point. Well, and there's another reason, too, which has to do with attitudes toward Vladimir Putin. Uh, we will get to that and uh, the question of will the Republican Party continue to be the party of business or will it be more of the working man's party? That and more coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Medved Show. Uh, pleasure to be joined again by Matthew Continetti. He is the author of the essential book, which is a history of the emergence of today's American conservative movement, which uh, used to be much easier to classify, used to be much more ideologically united uh, than it is today. His book is called The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. And it certainly is a sympathetic book toward conservatism because that's the way that um, Matthew Continenti identifies himself. And uh, the book is coming out in May in uh, paperback. There have been a number of other pieces. There was just a big piece featured in Wall Street Journal by Gerald Seib, who we had on the show. Is the GOP now the, a working man's party? And there was another piece earlier we had on Carl Zinsmeister who did a piece about the Republican Party was unlettered, by which he meant the no BAs or PhDs after your name, and uh, um, generally a, a party that was prominently people who did not have college degrees and uh, working class people of who are white and black and Latino is the Republican Party still the party of business and free markets and capitalism, or is it uh, becoming a working man's party, Matt Continetti? Well, Michael, I think it can be both the party of free markets and capitalism and the party of the working man. 
I do think some Republicans make a mistake. They make a category of, uh, error when they say that, well, because more and more Republican voters lack college degrees, therefore Republicans must embrace government power. I mean, I, if there's one lesson I take from my study of conservatism, it has always been skeptical of government power because it understands how fragile things are and how easily government can break them. Look, I think it's indisputable. The Republican Party is increasingly the party of voters uh, without college degrees, mainly white voters without college degrees, growing numbers of um, Hispanic voters and African-American males as well. But uh, the question is, well, does that really change the beliefs, the principles of the Republican Party? And in truth, I, I don't see much of a change. I mean, Republicans still are much more likely to say that the market is better than the alternatives. The Republican Party is very anti-socialist. The Republican House just passed a resolution last week condemning the crimes of socialism. And I would say that, too, that, you know, we hear a lot of analysis which goes that, uh, you know, Republicans have always been the party of big business and corporate America. That's not exactly true. Um, in fact, corporate America has in some ways been very hostile to conservative principles and free market ideas for, for the last century. What Republicans and conservatives have always championed is small business. And I think they continue to do that. So I do think uh, we see a lot of talk about how um, the fact that there are many um, Republicans who don't have college degrees means somehow that the Republican Party should embrace organized labor and the union movement or should adopt a wide-ranging industrial policy of picking winners and losers. I, I, I don't really see that happening. And in fact, uh, when uh, the Carl Zinnmeister piece, for example, you know, focusing on the unlettered nature uh, of Republicans today, you know, I, I think that Republican and conservative skepticism of expert opinion is warranted. Uh, I think it's been justified the way that some experts have behaved in recent years. Um, and I think that you can't go wrong standing for common sense in America. But I do think, though, that there's a danger in um, kind of moving beyond common sense and adopting conspiracy thinking or just kind of a uh, reflexive anti-intellectualism. Okay. When, when you actually look at where we are right now uh, – President Trump still is obviously the front runner for president. He's the most uh, prominent and probably the most popular uh, self-identified conservative in the country. But uh, you you actually did a piece just now where you talk about the Trump campaign bouncing back. Okay, that raises two questions. Bouncing back from what and how? <laughs> Sure. Well, uh, bouncing back from a very bad end of 2022, um, you look at the Trump campaign, uh, many of his candidates uh, who he endorsed in high-profile races, in particular in the Senate, but also some governorships, they lost. Um, when uh, you do an analysis, as some of my colleagues have done, um, you find that um, having a Trump um, brand to your name, the Trump endorsement hurt. Uh, candidates by as much as five percentage points. So there was a disappointing midterm election, and Trump, I think, was uh, responsible for much of for much of that disappointing result. Not all of it, but much of it. 
Um, then he had his campaign launch the following week, and that fell flat. And he went from there to his dinner with uh, two uh, high-profile anti-Semites, which was just awful and a disaster. So he ended the year in a very poor place. Meanwhile, of course, Ron DeSantis was rising. I believe that since the discovery that Biden had had the classified documents in his office and then at his home beginning in early January, Trump has uh, – come back. He's asserted, he's asserted himself, uh, and he's had um, a better news cycle and reestablished himself as a front runner, as you say. Um, we'll see what happens uh, in the coming months, um, especially in the, the decision I'm looking uh, at the, the closely is um, whether Ron DeSantis gets in the race later this spring. If Ron DeSantis doesn't run and Again, there are all kinds of reasons why he wouldn't. Um, who is going to be the p most viable challenger, do you believe, to President Trump for the nomination? Well, uh, looking at the polls today, uh, there really isn't one. Um, <laughs> the only, only DeSantis and Trump typically rate in double digits when you conduct a multi-candidate survey, typically in third place is Vice President Mike Pence, usually 8 or 9%. Um, beneath Pence now you have Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador and governor of South Carolina. She's expecting uh, to enter the race next week. I note that Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, very popular, um, is also um, exploring a presidential race. He's going to go on a listening tour next week. Um, I could see Tim Scott uh, rising in the polls in the coming months. Uh, but when I just simply look at uh, name ID, um, uh, fundraising potential, the ability to command the media narrative, it does seem to me like it's a Trump-DeSantis race. And one of the things that uh, people bring up all the time is there were presidential front runners at one time, oh, named Dick Gephardt or uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who didn't pan out at all. So tough to predict, but not tough to predict that uh, the hundred year war for American conservatism, the right, the new book by Matt Continetti is worth consideration. We will be. Medved show on the eve of the State of the Union speech. It's tomorrow. It's not tonight. It's tomorrow. There can be some other new crisis that emerges that will merit some kind of attention. Uh, the um, uh, and this is no surprise. The nation was so deeply moved by the um, the terrible, terrible murder of uh, Tyree Nichols that apparently his family will be there tonight or tomorrow night as the guests of President Biden. Uh, four in 10 Americans, according to the Washington Post ABC poll, four in 10 Americans say they've gotten worse off financially since Joe Biden became president, which uh, is astonishing, frankly. It is the... Um, the most in uh, ABC News, Washington Post polls dating back 37 years. 
that uh, they believe that they've gotten worse off uh, during uh, during a, a given presidency. And uh, political fallout includes poor performance ratings for Biden and a tight hypothetical Biden-Trump rematch next year. Heaven help us all. Given disaffection with both leaders, a rerun of the 2020 presidential election is hardly enticing. Nearly six in 10 Democratic-aligned adults don't want to see Biden nominated again for the job. Now, if, if people are looking at figures like that, there are some ambitious Democrats out there. And the idea of challenging Biden is almost a, a freebie. Why is it a freebie? Because you're fighting uphill. And even if you make it a uh, just a decent showing and Biden ends up winning the nomination, it could still help build a, a future race. If you if you look at the only occasions where presidential incumbents have been challenged within their own party, you never win. Sometimes you you drive the president out of office. That happened with Truman in 1952, where he was planning to run again. And uh, a Tennessee senator named Estes Kefauver ran against him and won the New Hampshire primary. And that kind of knocked Truman out of the race. Uh, the Eugene McCarthy didn't win the New Hampshire primary in 1968, but he got 42% against the incumbent Lyndon Johnson. It drove him out of office. And the point being that neither Kefauver nor McCarthy ever became president, but they certainly increased their national profile and their influence and their significance in the party. The um, nearly six in 10 Democratic aligned adults don't want to see Biden nominated again for the job. And half on the Republican side would rather not see Donald Trump as their party's nominee. If those were the choices in the election were today, the poll suggests it would be very close among all adults. 48% say they support Donald Trump and 44% are for Biden. It's among registered voters. It's a 48-45 similar margin. The differences are within the polls margin of sampling error. The, the other approach to what's going on in the United States when people are asked about the State of the Union... Okay, what all presidents say is the state of our union is strong, right? You've heard that a thousand times before. I don't think Biden can say that because the public isn't there with him. This is the brand new Gallup poll on the eve of the State of the Union where uh, it says Americans' assessment of the state of the nation remains in the pandemic-era slump seen since 2021, marked by subdued satisfaction with 30 different aspects of the country. These include the public's reaction to several aspects of U.S. society generally, as well as to numerous specific issues facing the country. The uh, new findings from Gallup's uh, January 2nd to 22nd Mood of the Nation poll come as only 23 percent 
Only 23% of Americans are broadly satisfied with the way things are going in the country, while the rest are dissatisfied, including nearly half who say very dissatisfied. Now, again, you read something like this, is that Joe Biden was sort of buoyed by the good jobs numbers and by maybe some progress against inflation, maybe promising news for the economy. And yes, he got an infrastructure bill passed. And yes, he got a gun control bill passed, which was almost entirely meaningless, it seems to me. Uh, but it, it, still, when when you, you look at, at 23% of Americans say they're broadly satisfied with the way things are going, while nearly half say they are very dissatisfied. If half the people in the country are very dissatisfied with where we're going, how, how is President Biden or Kamala Harris supposed to be returned to power? Now, things can change. There's still time. But the, the polling numbers, and these are different polls, but they have the same result, and the same result is that people do not like the direction that this country is going. The overall quality of life in the country and the opportunity for people to get ahead by working hard are the only two societal dimensions of eight measured in this year's Mood of the Nation poll that a majority of Americans view positively. Even these satisfaction ratings, however, are well below the record highs of 89% for the quality of life. That was in 2001 and 2002, a time right after a terrorist attack, and 77% for opportunity back in 2002. Uh, the uh, satisfaction about the state and power, size and power of the federal government, is uh, about a third. And what's remarkable about that is people who think that government should be more powerful and bigger, and there are a bunch of Democrats who believe that, uh, one would think could have united with people who, uh, who think that uh, uh, government is actually too big and that you have this overwhelming sense of the power of federal government is um, uh, not right. The uh, system of uh, Americans are at least satisfied with this, are at least satisfied with the nation's moral and ethical climate. How many people are satisfied with the moral and ethical climate in our country? Are you? When you're asked a question like that about the moral and ethical climate, 20% say they're satisfied with that, and 24% say they're satisfied with the way income and wealth are distributed. And uh, size of major corporations, only 27% are satisfied. Uh, this, is, um, this is not a, uh, a, a good moment for... Uh, President Biden to step up and to try to tell people it's happy days are here again, which, of course, is a traditional Democratic theme song. And it's a problem for him because uh, what they point out that the State of the Union, known as So Too, this is a piece by Michelle Cottle in the New York Times, is 
empty political theater. It is not. It's far from it. Especially this year when there is so much real-life drama to watch. With uh, President Biden assured, assumed to be gearing up for a re-election run, he will be test-driving issues and messages with campaign potential. What will resonate or not? Your predictions? 1-800-955-1776. We'll be right back. of debate. It's the Michael Medved Show. One of the things that uh, you usually look for in the State of the Union address is, of course, every president will, who has been president for two full years is going to emphasize all the wonderful things he's done for the country and all the beautiful flowers that are blossoming everywhere and the happy bunnies bouncing along the reborn land and it's joy and it's morning in America and it's wonderful. Okay, Biden can't do that. <laughs> not, not when you see that 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 basically uh, 20% of Americans think things are going well. They're satisfied with the direction of the country, 23%. It's not going to work for him. And the other problem is that what is his vision for the future? In other words, Biden claims to have done all these wonderful things. And given the fact that the American people don't believe either one, that uh, they're not so wonderful, that they're negative, or they believe, too, that uh, they, they may uh, not be big or significant things at all. And so how does he talk about the future? Now, again, there probably will be some mention of uh, the balloon threat because it's so much on people's minds. It, is it possible that someone like, oh, Lauren Boebert, who did it last time at the State of the Union, shouted back at the president fairly rudely, is it possible that people would hiss and boo and make fun of the president? Maybe they'll bring some balloons to release secretly. I guess you could blow them up and release them secretly on the House floor. Uh, the The entire thing is 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 not great. And frankly, I, I'm also not sure about whether it's politically or or even substantively right for Republicans to be so negative about the fact that President Biden delayed so as not to uh, incur any damaging impact on the American mainland. He uh, waited until the balloon was over water, but within our 12-mile territorial uh, control of some of the Atlantic Ocean so that we would have a chance to actually recover, and apparently the Navy SEALs have done some of that, to recover pieces of what was left over from the balloon. Uh, speaking of leftover from the balloon, uh, on Face the Nation, 
Ted Cruz speaking the day after, of course, the balloon came down, at least acknowledged that shooting it down was the right thing to do. Here's the senator from Texas. I want to start by doing something that I don't do very often, uh, which is commending Joe Biden for actually having the guts to shoot this down. That was the right thing to do. That is absolutely what the president should have done. Unfortunately, he didn't do that until a week after it entered U.S. airspace. He allowed a full week for the Chinese to conduct spying operations over the United States, over sensitive military installations, exposing not just photographs, but the potential of intercepted communications. And, and more broadly, I, I think this entire episode uh, telegraphed weakness to Xi and the Chinese government. And, and to illustrate why, I, I would just ask one, one hypothetical question. Imagine how this would have played out if nobody had taken any pictures of the balloon, if nobody in Montana had looked mm -hmm. up and no noticed this giant balloon, if it wasn't in the news. We know yeah. that when the Biden administration knew about the balloon, they said nothing, they did nothing, they didn't shoot it down. And at the end of the day, I think the only reason they shot it down is because it made it into the news well, and they felt... Well forced to as a matter of politics rather than national security. That's a well, bad message for the Chinese government to hear. Well, it's certainly a bad message for the president to convey. Uh, Leon Panetta, had, uh, who's a former White House chief of staff under President Clinton, former head of the CIA and defense secretary and, and all of that, he was appearing on CNN. And uh, here's his reaction, which echoes Senator Cruz, uh, clip five. You're saying that you think this should have been shot down, perhaps over Montana, something like that, maybe over a, a sparsely populated area, that sort of thing, before it crossed over the entire, almost the entire continental U.S. Yeah, that, uh, that bothered me, that, uh, uh, that it was allowed to uh, transverse the uh, uh, entire country. Uh, and, and for that reason, I think, it probably would have been well for, for the president uh, to, to have been transparent with the country uh, about what was happening here. Uh, when they initially found uh, that the balloon was there, uh, when they considered it to be an intelligence-gathering balloon, and frankly, when the president made the decision to shoot it down, if he made the decision on Wednesday to shoot it down, uh, I think that should have been made public. Uh, it would have prevented some of the criticism uh, that occurred later. Uh, and the American people, I think, are entitled to know uh, just exactly what our adversaries are up to. So uh, I think greater transparency would have helped the White House as well. Look, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, the, the difficulty is that if the president was aware, and he appears to have been uh, eight days before the balloon was shot down, that it was uh, entering U.S. airspace, uh, at least making some kind of public announcement rather than creating the impression that nothing would have happened. He would have said nothing. He would have kept it a secret from the American people if a local newspaper in Montana hadn't spotted this big blob up in the sky. And speaking about big blobs up in the sky, Saturday Night Live was actually pretty amusing about... Uh, the entire balloon invasionary force. Uh, listen. General, we've never seen an object like this gain entry into our airspace before. How did that happen? That's an excellent question, Katie. 
The balloon was somehow able to get past our West Coast anti-balloon defense system, the Seattle Space Needle. But once it was here, we were able to keep an eye on it with our sophisticated tracking technology of going like this. He then looks up to the sky. And that's how we track this thing. Uh, that uh, Keenan Thompson on Saturday Night Live. Uh, the the idea of looking toward the future, uh, looking toward the future could be a, a very, very serious matter in the State of the Union address regarding the war in Ukraine. Because there are a lot of people on the left, on the right, and in the center who are looking at the war as it enters its second year. And despite all the heroism and the achievements of the Ukrainian freedom fighters, and I think they are freedom fighters, the, uh, the difficulty now is what is the second year going to look like? And in fact, uh, the Ukrainians just um, replaced their defense minister, Reznikov, who um, uh, had been a close colleague and... Apparently, it's another close colleague of Vladimir Zelensky, and it has to do with uh, not with Reznikov being involved with some of the corruption that they are chronically trying to deal with even in Ukraine, but it had to do with him being a few spaces uh, closer in contact with people who were involved than would help uh, a, a country that is struggling for its life and uh, just has new doses of Western aid uh, headed in their direction. I do think the president's going to have to speak about Ukraine and speak about the basis for continued and, in fact, even increased American support. And uh, John Meacham, apparently, the fine historian and very gifted writer, is one of those people who is coming uh, forward to help the president write the speech. And uh, I would imagine, knowing John Meacham a little bit, those will be speeches that are uh, passages that are going to be memorable and dramatic and maybe even effective. But then again, this all goes back to the problem that Joe Biden has with actually delivering a big speech like this. Let's say he has a text. Let's say he's practicing, he's rehearsing it. Uh, that was the case last time, and he made some major mistakes. Speaking of major mistakes, uh, there were uh, arrests involved a plot to knock out power in Baltimore's power grid. Who's behind it? One of the people is a longtime American Nazi. There's also re reports of Nazi activity in San Francisco and in Atlanta. What is going on? We'll talk about that and the rise of anti-Semitism with question mark in this greatest nation on God's green earth.